0: Chapter 30 of Harry D., or Making It Out. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Harry D., or Making It Out, by Francis J. Finn. Chapter 30, in which I have the doubtful pleasure of renewing Mr. James Caggett's acquaintance. For Percy and myself, our year in the rhetoric class did not run smoothly. We had an excellent teacher, it is true, and started in with a will. But early in November, Percy was called home, owing to the serious sickness of his mother, and I, too, was called away later. We missed him sorely in the classroom and in the yard. Frank Burdock, who to his great joy had been promoted to the senior division, was inconsolable. Quip, Ruthers, White, Richards, and myself formed the remnants of the Ciceronians. Harry took Tom's place as leader, and he performed his part well. Yet, when we met together, we missed our two friends, and felt that the old order was changing, yielding place to new. Late in November I received a letter from Mr. Lang, which bears closely upon the strange adventures I have yet to relate. Let me put it before the reader in full. Dear Sir, After long and careful study, I am certain that Stockbroker had nothing to do with making away with that 43,000-odd dollars. We must conclude, then, that you yourself secreted the money before or after stabbing your uncle. It is the only possible solution, as far as I can see. My idea, then, is that all of said money is on the premises." if there, it can be found. However, before taking any steps in the matter, I would like to have a personal interview with you, for I wish to make you thoroughly satisfied that I have used all human prudence in studying up this very complicated case. We'll call on you at St. Moore's if you wish, but as am busy with other cases, would prefer it could you contrive to come here." Yours sincerely, Lang. After reading this letter, I fell into a brown study. As matters now seemed to look, the facts in the case were all phenomenal. First of all, it was improbable that I should kill my uncle with one blow of a dagger, even in waking hours, and still in my sleep I had struck him with the nicest precision. Again, It was improbable that I should have examined his bed and made away with and secreted all his money. Were I to tell a stranger these details, he would laugh at me or brand me as a falsifier. There were other difficulties. Did Mrs. Dorn really hear an adult's footfall in addition to my light patter, or was it a part of her dream?' the evidence gathered by the detective would seem to negative the former. But despite all evidence these doubts still lingered in my mind. The desire to solve the mystery of my uncle's death had now become the leading thought of my life. There was no risk I would not encounter, no danger I would not dare, to arrive at the truth." if necessary, I was resolved to give not only my money, but also to venture my life for the unravelling of this tangle. I should state here that for some months past the entire management of the case had been entrusted to me by my father, who, confined to the house by an attack of bronchitis, had been compelled to put aside all business affairs.' My good father had the utmost confidence in me. Of course, I consulted him on every step, and I must say that he rarely, if ever, gave me any advice. Think it out for yourself, Harry, he would say. You have shown your obedience by asking my advice, and I am grateful. Now show your self-reliance by choosing your own course." That boy is blessed whose father can teach him docility and independence in one lesson. As I read and reread this letter, I remembered the few words which Tom had whispered me as we shook hands at the depot. Harry, old boy, you're not out of the woods yet with regard to this muddle. The time will come when you'll feel it your duty to yourself to go to that house again, and who knows, but the second visit will bring out more than our first. I can't be with you next time, but you can get a better companion. Take Percy Wynne. Percy's as gentle as a girl, but he's as bold as a lion. He's not afraid of anything in this world or the next, except sin. As for ghosts, Why, Percy would as soon talk to a ghost as to a peanut seller. You can rely on Percy. It struck me now that Tom's prediction was coming true, and I determined, if I could bring it about, that in case I should make another visit to the haunted house, Percy should be my companion. Two days after the receipt of this letter, I was closeted for six hours with Mr. Lang. His statements were luminous, not a loophole seemed to be allowed for error. I was staggered, and before leaving him, I was convinced that I had slain my uncle, and made away with a large sum of money belonging to myself. I was troubled in mind to return to St. Moore's, and besides, my father was very low, I felt that my place was by his side. As the days went by in the pleasant companionship with my father, the conviction borne in upon me by the data of Mr. Lang softened into doubt. The old difficulties presented themselves. Father, I said one evening in mid December, I'm not satisfied with Mr. Lang's statements. Don't you believe him? Yes, Father. That is, I believe that he believes his own conclusions, but I'm not satisfied. Well, what do you propose to do? I propose to spend another night at Tower Hill Mansion. Alone? No, Father, with Percy Wynne. When? As soon as Percy Wynne can join me, Father, I'll send him a dispatch at once. It was now December 20th, and Percy was in St. Louis. Without delay, I wired him... The following message. Will you accompany me to the Tower Hill Mansion at earliest convenience? The prompt reply came. Certainly, we can start on the morning of December 24th. Percy Wynn. The following morning, I received this letter. My dear Harry, My mother is now out of danger, and it will be a great pleasure, my dear friend, for me to clasp your honest hand after so long a separation. I'll be delighted to have your company even for a single night and even in a haunted house. What's a haunted house, after all? We're in God's hands there, just the same as anywhere else. Isn't God upon the ocean just the same as on the land? Asks the little girl in the poem. Do what we may, we can't get away from him, nor lose a hair of our heads without his permission. And so, dear friend, we'll spend Christmas together. Were it not for that, I'd wish you a million pleasant things in this letter. But how much better than cold writing will it be to speak to you from my heart and face to face? I have seen Tom. They call him Carissime Playfair. Carissime is short for the vocative Carissime Frater. He is well and oh so happy. He is more of a wag than ever. But when he does stop laughing, which happens seldom, there's such an expression of sanctity upon his features. When he lived with us, much as we thought of him, we were entertaining an angel unawares. He sends you his dearest love. I have just now written him a few lines to let him know where we are to be at midnight of Christmas. He will be at midnight mass, and I've given him strict injunctions to batter the gates of heaven with storms of prayer all during that midnight mass for our intention. You, my dear Harry, value Tom's prayers as I do. He's an American saint. Well, Goodbye, my dear friend. You have no idea with what pleasure I look forward to meeting you. I have examined the timetable and find that I'll reach Sessionsville at 7 a.m. Your train for Tower Hill Mansion leaves at 9, so there'll be no difficulty in my calling at your house and making the connection. Goodbye once more, dear Harry. Yours most affectionately, Percy Wynn. P.S. Am delighted to hear that your father is so much better and that the doctor pronounces him to be on the road to recovery. Give him my sincere regards. Pray for me as I pray for you. P.W. On December 22nd, I was walking homeward toward nightfall when a man came shambling up to me asking for an alms. I was struck for some inexplicable reason with his appearance. Clad in rags, a battered old hat upon his head, a thick brushwood of beard upon his roughened countenance, he was every inch a tramp. His hair, long neglected, was iron-gray. But what impressed me most was his rugged, forbidding forehead fixed in gloom and bordered below by heavy, forbidding eyebrows. I gazed at him for a moment while he continued his entreaties the air of gloominess about him, by a natural transition in my present state of mind, brought back the memories of Tower Hill Mansion. Then, in an instant, it flashed upon me that no less a person was standing before me than my uncle's old butler, Mr. James Caggett. My plans were formed on the instant. Here before me was the very man who, of all men living, was best acquainted with the interior of my uncle's mansion. In case a protracted search were necessary, who could be a more useful assistant? On the other hand, I knew full well that, of all the places in the world, Tower Hill Mansion would be the last place where Caggett would go of his own free choice. In common with the other servants of that ill-fated mansion, As I had learned from Mr. Lang, he held it was a house of haunted horrors. All the same, I was determined that Caggett should accompany me, if anything short of downright physical force could bring it about. If I'm not mistaken, I began, I am talking to an old friend of my family, James Caggett. The bloodshot eyes glanced at me very sharply from under their rugged brows, while the forehead wrinkled into a hideous frown. Who are you? he said with the rasping voice which appeared to have caught the trick from my deceased uncle. Don't you remember the little boy who came to spend Christmas night with his uncle six years ago? Again he looked at me keenly, and I saw as the blood deserted his cheeks that he recognized me. "'Yes, I know you. Ha, 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 ha! What a blood-curdling laugh it was! I thought you were the murderer once, didn't I? But I meant you no harm. Honestly, I thought you did it in your sleep, but I was glad when I heard that that she-devil had done it and not you. My anger at his allusion to Mrs. Dorn almost got the better of me, but I held myself in check.' "'So you're in need of help,' I said. "'I haven't had a square meal in three days, sir. "'Things have gone awful hard for me. "'An honest man can't make a living in these hard times. "'Yes, sir, I've been obliged to beg. "'Couldn't you get me something to do, sir?' "'Yes,' I answered quickly. "'You come to my father's house at eight sharp "'on the morning of December the 24th, "'and I'll give you a job that will pay you well.' And if you satisfy me, I'll try to help you along. I'll be there, sir. Will it be ready money? You'll get a good sum from me on Christmas morning. Here are two dollars and a half for your present needs. I'd give you more, only I count on making it up when we meet again. Thank you, sir. How eagerly he clutched the money. You may be sure that I'll call on the morning of December 24th. His rasping voice still rasped in my ears as I made my way home, and into the disordered dreams of that night floated this gloomy-browed, hideous tramp, moving about in all the fantastic shapes born of unpleasant memories. End of Chapter 30